You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. My name is Max Delaney, and uh, I'm delighted to welcome you this evening for the second lecture in our 2019-2020 lecture series, Defining Moments, Australian Exhibition Histories, 1968-1999. The the series encompasses 16 lectures over two years that will take a deeper look at critical moments that have shaped Australian art since 1968. The series will analyse game changes in Australian art, addressing key contemporary art exhibitions and projects staged over the last three decades of the 20th century, and we'll reflect on the ways these exhibitions have shaped art history and contemporary Australian culture more broadly. To begin, I'd like to sincerely acknowledge the Bunwurrung, the traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and we extend our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. The Defining Moments Australian Exhibition Histories lecture series wouldn't be possible without the support of a number of key partners. I'd like to extend our heartfelt thanks to presenting partner Abercrombie and Kent, who have been generous long-time supporters of ACCA and our lecture series, and we're truly grateful for their ongoing commitment and support. We're also very pleased and excited to welcome our new partnership with the Centre for Visual Art, COVA, at the University of Melbourne, who are supporting the lecture series as a research partner. COVA was established in 2018 to facilitate innovative research and collaborative projects with an ambition to become a leader in the field of visual art research within the Asia-Pacific region. And we look very much forward to working with COVA colleagues over the next two years and beyond. We're also grateful to our media partners, Art Guide Australia, The Saturday Paper and Triple R. And of course, special thanks to our event partners, the City of Melbourne, CAPI, and we hope you are enjoying your complimentary cocktail from the Melbourne Gin Company. Tonight, they've made for us the MGC Floridora with gin, raspberry, lime, and ginger beer. Um, uh, We're very excited this evening to present the second lecture in the Defining Moments series, Digging for Honey Ants, the Papunya Mural Project by John Keane and with Hannah Presley as respondent. The creation of murals at the Punya School in 1971 is cited as a singular catalyst that set off the Western Desert Painting Movement. The truth of this claim is in fact more complex, confounding and consequential. Tonight, John Keane examines the subject of the murals and the broader social context in which they were created. In Digging for Honey Ants, John will reveal how this mythic gesture signifies a telling shift in colonial relations. We are delighted to welcome John this evening. John was art advisor at Papunya Tula from 1977 to 1979. He was inaugural exhibition coordinator at Tandanya, the National Aboriginal Cultural Institute in Adelaide, from 1989 to 1992, and has since worked in roles at the Fremantle Arts Centre and Museum Victoria. John now works as an independent curator and writer and is currently undertaking PhD research into the work of four of Papunya Tula's founding artists. John has published extensively on Indigenous art and on the representation of nature in Australian museums and has great expertise and understanding to elaborate on the context this evening. Our respondent this evening is Hannah Presley, who is the inaugural Yalingwa Curator at ACCA, a position she has held since mid-2017, and from which she developed the major exhibition A Lightness of Spirit is a Measure of Happiness at ACCA last year. Hannah is an Indigenous curator based in Melbourne with family connections in Alice Springs and Pepperminati in the Northern Territory. Hannah was First Nations curatorial assistant for My Horizon, Tracy Moffat, at, um, at the Venice Biennale in 2017, 
and her practice focuses on the development of creative projects with Aboriginal artists, working closely with artists, learning about the techniques, history and communities that inform their making to guide, their, and to guide the, her curatorial process. We are thrilled to welcome John here this evening to talk about Pandatula and equally delighted to have Hannah um, as respondent. Hannah will be responding to John's presentation and we will then join John in a short discussion after which we'll have time for questions from the audience. My colleague, Adrienne Hayward, uh, ACA's Curator of Public Programs, will be on hand with a microphone to welcome questions. So we aim to wrap up by about 7.30. So um, without further ado, please join me in welcoming our speaker this evening, John Keane. Thanks very much. It's wonderful to see a full house. Very exciting. Uh, I'd like to acknowledge uh, Bunwarang and Wurundjeri people of the uh, area that we're meeting on and all Kulin people. I'd also recognise their elders that we've learnt from, especially in more recent years, and all Indigenous people who are here tonight. But I'd also like to recognise uh, the Papanya Chula artists, particularly Karpa Jamba Jimba, who I'll speak of uh, tonight, who were a, a formative influence in uh, my career, my uh, life experience. They taught me about uh, country and the environment and about family relations. I'll give you a moment just to get oriented on, on this map um, with Alice Springs and Papanya which lays uh, on the Tropic of Capricorn, about 250 kilometres northwest of Alice Springs. This is honey ant country. From October each year's, year, monsoonal um, storms scatter across the, the plain from the northwest, uh, from the Tanami Desert, and in a spectacular show. But beneath the earth, and that's the subject of what I'll speak of tonight. Uh, there are millions of honey ants hanging from the, the roofs of um, underground chambers. They're cryptic animals. They live in Mulga country. And to find them, you have to track their, their little traces across the earth to tiny holes. And then the holes plummet down about a metre and then spread out to chambers underneath the earth. They're really valuable as a source of sugar, a rare source of sugar in central Australia. But they're also of incredible um, spiritual and um, ontological importance because they show how uh, people, how country is connected via an intricate network of underground tunnels. Like Switzerland, Papania is a multilingual place. Several languages are spoken, and here you can see to, um, to the west are the Pindaby people, Luritja people to the southwest, and they're all um, speakers of Western Desert languages, like the Kukaja, the owners of the place, and they all use Kuka. Uh, as a term for meat and identify by their, their use of that particular term. To the east are the Aranda, speaking a whole different language, and to the northeast are the Amadjura. And today I'll be speaking primarily about Amadjura people and Amadjura artists. To the north 
towards Yundamu are the Walbury speakers. So they're, they're three big different languages. Papunya operated as a government settlement um, for about uh, 15 years before the painting movement started. Um, in 1954, um, there was a bore struck in the waterhole there, initially for cattle, but when uh, the water ran out at Hus Bluff, about 30 kilometres to the south, uh, the government moved all of the people there. It was, it was already a kind of multicultural community at Hus Bluff. They moved them to Papunya and created a, a big new settlement. Going back in time, though, Papunya has always been a major place. It's a really significant um, honey ant site. Um, and people have lived there um, and done ceremonies for, for millennia. Earlier on this year, I went up to, um, to Papunya to discuss this lecture, and I camped out near Haas Bluff, that big, uh, magnificent big bluff there. And on a morning walk, I found the, the grindstone that you can see. The grindstone's significant because it's, it's through that uh, seed grinding culture that uh, people have been sustained in arid Australia for so long. And it's undoubtable that the local women of the um, honey ant totem use that stone. Maybe they used it 100 years ago, maybe 70 years ago in the 20th century, or perhaps a millennia ago, and it's been covered and only recently exposed by erosion. This is a painting done of the Papunya area by some of the um, really old women, they've now all passed, um, who, whose knowledge went back to that seed grinding time. And this is the waterhole at Papunya. So innumerable children have been conceived around this waterhole and all of those children um, bear uh, or carry the honey ant totem for honey ant kids and grow up as custodians. In 1955, the linguist and ethnographer T.G.H. Strello made a film of an elaborate rituals associated with the Jala honey ant songline. They were performed by Paddy Anatari and Bert Nanana um, in Alice Springs in 1955, and that's the most complete record of the um, honey ant dreaming. I was really fortunate as a young man to meet Bert and Nanana, uh, Nanana and Paddy Anatari when I worked uh, with Papunya Chula artists. They, they performed the sequence of dances from Tarata in the west in Pindaby country right through to the climax of the ceremony where they created amazing elaborate structures at Papunya. So Papunya is really the centre of a great wheel. And in this painting by Tim Lura, uh, you can see how it was conceived. So this painting reads as a, a cardinal map, if you like, with north, east, south, west. Tarata in the west. Uh, these are all honeyman places. Yundamu and Yulamu in the north. Korbala and Nguala Nanaman. Uh, where the honey is, on the Sandover River in Aliora country, and that's on the east side of the Stuart Highway. Lyapa, an equally important um, 
Hanyant site in Aranda country to the east, and even as far as Adnadatta, more commonly referred to as Udnadatta, a thousand kilometres to the south. Papania was one of the last of the big settlements created in the assimilation policy, and it was a, uh, a magnet for people uh, from the surrounding area, particularly Amadjura stockmen uh, from Napabi um, to the northeast. So people like Tim Lura, Jabaljari, and Kapa Jambijimba came here to work, and also they found wives. By the time Jeff Barden arrived in, uh, as a school teacher in February 1971, cracks had started to emerge in the um, assimilation policy, though people didn't accept the, the, um, the law, uh, the European law that was imposed. Um, there was incredible uh, morbidity and mortality amongst, particularly amongst the Pintabi people who came in from the West. Um, and there were frequent riots um, in the 19, early 1970s that showed the kind of general discontent with the community. These are the, the three key institutions, um, the church, the town hall and the school. Baden was uh, one of a new breed of whitefellas who came up from southern Australia and... Um, I'm, I'm one of those people who followed in his wake. And rather than um, seek to assert uh, an, the um, assimilationist approach, uh, we looked to Aboriginal culture and tried to uh, find ways to um, support it. Uh, one of the key things that's happened out of, one of the positives that happened out of our efforts was uh, the creation of the Papania Chula uh, Limited Company. Baden uh, was an uh, obdurate um, refusenik of the assimilation policy and he fought quite bitterly with the uh, more established whitefellas at the community and made it quite difficult for uh, to get the, the resources that he needed to see through his ambitious plans. Carpa was a, a key character in Papania at that time. Uh, he was regarded by many as a troublemaker, um, quite often arrested, um, and he was, uh, he was a, a, a man who'd grown up in the saddle as a stockman, um, mustering cattle from um, Napabi as far as Mount Isa. But his key education really came under the stars at Corroboree camps not far from Papania sometimes. And this image by Tim Lura uh, could be Carpa. That's his dreaming, that's his conception site, uh, an emu dreaming. In contrast, Barden's creative vision had been forged at Alan Vaughan's tutorship at the Alexander Mackey Teachers College in Sydney. There, Barden was exposed to the intellectual haptic dichotomy theorised by Victor Lowenfeld. And I think that um, quite subjective approach that he'd adopted affected what he did uh, in Papania and how he, he cast his role there. And it's quite critical to our discussion. 
Barden was alive to the potential of murals. Um, perhaps he'd seen the work of Diego Rivera as a student in books. Uh, he may have even been aware of the burgeoning mural movement um, around Chicago that can be traced to this William Walker um, wall of respect um, mural that became a focus for the black power movement in, at Chicago. I searched for comparable murals in Australia during that time um, without avail. Um, the murals here at that time seemed to be, um, and I'll be really interested if anyone knows of any revolutionary murals from Melbourne in the 1950s or Sydney, or, or even up to the early 70s. Uh, rather, they were commissioned by um, institutions, educational and corporate institutions, and they supported the status quo. So the mural initiated by Barden at Papania is remarkable because it preceded um, the murals that we became familiar with in the 1980s that celebrate workers, women, local history um, in Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide particularly. Barden and his headmaster, Fred Fries, are emblematic of the changing educational order in the Northern Territory. But despite their, their good intentions, they couldn't hold back the alienation um, kids would throw mud at the walls and the library at the Papunya School was torched. And Fries asked for um, Barden's ideas and he came up with the suggestion that murals should be painted for the people and by the people. And it was a, a visionary wisdom, I think, but um, you know, clearly it's brought us all here tonight. Barden was particularly busy in uh, the... Uh, his early time in Papania. And it was the same moment when the artistic, um, there was a new sort of um, flowering of artistic production. Uh, he got to know Pintaby men like Turuma who'd uh, work at his house, uh, generally with paper and pencils, sometimes making these objects. And he also got to know um, Billy Stockman and Long Jack Philippus, who worked as groundsman at the Papania School. And these murals that you can see here are the result um, of, of that first efforts, uh, painted by Jack Philippus, Warangola, Johnny Warangola, Nosepeg, Jungada, and Billy Stockman. The murals are very different to traditional art forms um, of body painting or ground painting. They were painted with self-leveling acrylic paints, a product of post-Second uh, post World War uh, technology, and they're painted vertically. They're also quite unlike the watercolour paintings um, by Namajira School. Carpa, uh, Jack Philippus, and Billy Stockman were already quite familiar with uh, these acrylic paints, however, because they'd worked um, on the infrastructure project, painting uh, walls and bits of iron around the place. So these paintings, they were created with new materials in a totally different context, and I think that's the reason why they should be regarded as contemporary art. The murals weren't the only thing that was going on. Carper had established uh, his own studio at uh, an old settlement office that had been abandoned, and uh, that was a, a sort of magnet for um, 
his gang of um, stockmen and people from House Bluff uh, to produce these works. They worked on mainly salvage materials. You can see here there's a direct relationship between the work that was done in Carpus Studio, the Jack Philippus work, and his uh, Widow's Dreaming that was done on the, as a mural. They're parallel and maybe 200, um, 200 metres apart, these institutions. This is an example of um, one of Carpus' paintings from that time. So the, the relationship between Carpus' studio and the murals um, is quite unexplored, but I, I don't think you can look at one or either of these um, and get the full picture of what was going on because the, the practitioners were, were moving toward, between these two spaces. We'll make a move now up north. Locally known as the Aboriginal Olympics, Yindamu Sports Weekend was an unmissable event in the 1970s and 80s. Harry Nelson, Harry Jagamara Nelson, in his opening address um, to the to the Yundamu Museum, um, directly referred to murals being there in 1971. Now the dates are are very critical here um, because as uh, European, well, um, working in the European academic tradition, priority is critical. So. The um, murals of Tupunya had been painted in the winter and then both um, Baden and Karpa went up to Yundamu in 1971 in August, very early August, and everything was happening at this time. Sorry, we'll go back one. These are the murals that were painted in the Men's Museum, and it was a very different space. Um, it's a darkened space. It was for men only or others that were, were taken in by custodians uh, to see these murals. And there was an antechamber where there were sacred objects. The museum was actually to store sacred objects from the local area. So the murals and... Um, a ground painting that was created in the centre of the room were kind of authorising um, expressions of what couldn't be seen on these sacred objects that were stored away for men's use. Interestingly, interestingly the, um, uh, the museum has been restored. Uh, Darby Ross Jambijimba maintained that space as a as a museum for many years, and despite the, the roof falling in in the early part of the 20th century, uh, 21st century, uh, the murals stayed good and have been restored. So it's a really interesting comparison. These two um, comparable expressions calling on the same um, visual language, Kurawari, men's designs used for the instruction of Malayara, young initiates, uh, were, were what was going up in both spaces. One was darkened and prescribed, and the other was in a pedagogical space and open to the light. 
Kapa should be considered as a really important conduit between the two places, and I think that's something that hasn't been recognised as yet. Um, Dick Kimber, a historian from Central Australia, records Kapa being amongst a, a large group of men doing revolutionary dances, that is, um, dances they brought from the, the um, restricted realm of men's ritual into a public realm where kids and women could see them. So he was doing a lot of this, um, involved a lot of this sort of new stuff at that time. So these murals that were, were happening um, are really an expression of an upwelling of confidence in Aboriginal culture at that time. Uh, it was happening in, in very many locations, but it wasn't separate from what was happening across the rest of Australia and indeed uh, the rest of the world of, of, at that time. That kind of democratisation um, of culture and the, the old order, um, post-Second World War order, being turned on its head. So let's go back to that time in August 71, following the Yundamu Sports there'd been a positive response to the first round of murals. And Keith Namajira, Albert Namajira's son, was prophetically engaged to render the wall, um, a large wall in the school, and undercoat it, a wall that called out for an important design. It was just at this juncture when Barden met Carper for the first time. Barden, uh, sorry, Carper came up to Barden's flat with a key custodian of the site, Mick Wallencurry. Um, and Mick had, Akapa had prepared a little piece of paper with a design on it, and um, he gave it to Mick, who then gave it to Barden. So they had uh, really strong intent to get this mural on that wall. The design that they chose is one that's reflected uh, across a, a very wide area of uh, Central Australia. Uh, and it's really similar to what you can see on this um, kudichi, a softwood shield made for the instruction of uh, young men. It's also very similar to these uh, honey ant designs from um, Kaidicha country to the north that were recorded, I think, way back in the um, 19th century. If we compare those two sets of images, you can see it's, it's the same thing. So this is quite like a lot of the iconography of specific totems that's common across a very large area, but articulated in quite different ways. And I think you can see that um, Carper's brilliance here, that he's chosen a design that would fit on the proportions of that wall with particular panache. The icon consists of two major elements, the tunnels of the honey ant ancestors, going straight through the composition. Um, and those looping concentric um, circles are the major sites along that path. So um, a long song line with key, key places along it. The largest concentric circle in the centre is the main place, Papanya. From the moment of his first meeting with Barden, Carper managed the process at artistic, practical and strategic levels. So he managed the um, negotiations with the owner of, of the area, Tom Onion, um, the, the, the custodian of it, the looker-after policeman, Mick Wallencurry, and Bert Nananana, who performed that big ceremony I mentioned before. He was also negotiating with Headmaster Fred Fries and Jeff Barden. 
So the uh, first version of the mural um, caused a bit of consternation and I won't be showing that one. Um, there were some uh, paired loops there that reflected uh, the, the marks used in ceremony, um, in men's ceremony on the honey ants and the, the owners didn't like that. So Kappa replaced it with this um, realistic uh, honey ant motif. Barden um, queried Kappa's honey ants he said, are these proper blackfella honey ants? Then insisted, nothing is to be whitefella. Years after the event, Barden recalled the response to his intervention. Then all work stopped and six other painters crowded about to look at the honey ants and Carper seemed, who seemed to have a, an answer even before words were said. I remember how he, he liked to push himself towards you with a distinct movement his, of his face, a roguish, all-knowing look, all quick and right. Carpa then back, came back with insouciant ambiguity. Not ours, yours, we paint yours. Confident in his role of, as arbiter of Aboriginality, Barden confirmed blackfella honey ants. And obligingly, Carpa painted out the, the uh, realistic figurative ants and replaced them with the um, icon that's uh, there's now so well known. Those little U-shapes, uh, a, a more generic sign for uh, a seated figure or a travelling figure. So this third version satisfied um, all stakeholders and Bart it satisfied Barden because of its sort of abstraction and its authenticity. And he went on to, remind, uh, to regard it as a, a moment of glory for the Western Desert people going further. Uh, he pronounced the mur honey ant mural as the beginning of Western Desert painting. So um, while he acknowledged Carper as a, a classically brilliant artist, Barden considers uh, that this was really his gift and he wrote, the Aboriginal men saw themselves in their own image and before their very own eyes and upon a European building. Truly, something strange and marvellous had begun. The renown achieved by the honey ant mural is, is remarkable. You know, almost 50 years later, uh, we're thinking about a mural that was viewed by very few people. Just the um, students from the school, um, their parents and a few uh, few teachers and bureaucrats who came through the school. Because in that next summer, um, there was a maintenance crew that came through, uh, sent by the Northern Territory Education Department, who um, uh, covered over the murals. So by the time everyone came back, all the uh, school teachers came back for the new year, they were gone. So rather than being a, um, an act of vandalism, I think it's just typical of the, the sort of uh, reckless disregard uh, for education in, in the Northern Territory over the last 50 years. Barden then, uh, he's, he's the person who's achieved the notoriety for, for the mural. He's advocated its importance in all three of his mono monographs and he insists on its singularity. Barden discounts the work that was being done in the adjacent, uh, in Carpa's adjacent studio. 
And also, he uh, doesn't acknowledge the work that was happening in the Yundamu Men's Museum, just 100 miles to the north. He's argued consistently um, for its authenticity. So he, he uh, Baden's sort of concentrated on the mural's sort of talismanic otherness. And Marcia Lampton captures Baden's posture quite eloquently, insisting that it's a projection of, of a time when the main drama is the stance of the Western observer, a phenomenon she's seen played out across Indigenous colonial relations, especially in artistic domains. Vivian Johnson describes the uncritical repetition of what she terms Geoffrey Barden's foundation story of Papania Chularatus that she considers has been told so intensely and has been retold so often and so widely that now it has almost the force of a dreaming narrative itself. Barden's dreamy photographs also place the events of 1971 in a liminal zone out of the reach of our current understanding. My criticism of the credulous repetition of Barden's version of the story and its faceless creators is not intended to diminish the significance of the mural itself, but it's inciting us to look deeper into the cultural context um, in which it was created. Australia was a culture in flux at that time. After uh, 30 years of conservative Menzies rule and just on the, the cusp of um, voting in Whitlam and the legislation that he would enact, his government would enact. So it's a reflection once again of what's happening across a broader landscape. Carper's cousin Tim Lura painted the honey ant dreaming at Papania more consistently um, than any of the other founding Papania Chula paintings. And I think we're to look at Tim's paintings in particular if we're really to understand how the honey ant dreaming is understood locally. So Tim painted this um, site with visceral materiality. Um, he, he's using the, uh, the paint as a kind of an analogy for the, the fecundity of the earth below. He, rather than obscuring the dreaming lines, the song lines, Tim's giving us another level um, where it's understood that the, uh, the overburden of, of um, red earth is imbued with those essential elements, blood and honey. The Honey Ant mural is important because it's an, a, a proclamation of the significance of place and Papania's connection to the broader landscape, those tunnel, that tunnel that goes right through the composition links Papania to places from Udnadatta to um, up towards Tennant Creek. So I contend that Carper was not so much flattered to have his image emblazoned on the wall of a European building, but more exactly, he was taking possession of that building, just as he'd uh, been uh, taking possession of uh, paintbrushes when he worked at the school and had been sacked uh, for stealing them. So Carper's unruly agency is critical to the narrative of the desert, of desert art. He was a leading hand in the Honey Ant mural, 
Um, and his role in that project inverts um, our uh, received vision of Barden's uh, sensitive intervention. The moment when the um, honey ant uh, mural was painted, Carper was um, also, some people are getting the joke there, um, Carper had just come back when this photo was taken uh, from um, Alice Springs, where his painting, uh, Gulgardi, had won the Caltex Northern Territory Art Award. He'd also um, taken a consignment of works into uh, Alice Springs and he'd sold the lot. So he came back to Papunya with $750, which um, was an enormous amount at that time. So that's why he's carrying that side of lamb and a big box of groceries with him with a, a, you know, a very satisfied look on his face. So Carper's a major figure. He was the first master of Papania Chula art and at a technical level, uh, at a conceptual level, if you look at his works from 1971, um, they're, they're way more confident and sophisticated than anything that the other artists in, in Papania were doing at that time. So I'd like to look at the present significance of the honey ant mural. Jupi, Jala and Yarampi, various names for honey ant, remain as a symbol, almost a brand of the honey ant community, as well as being its major totem. In a recent vision, uh, visit to discuss this lecture with the, um, the daughters and um, grandkids of the original artists, um, I snapped these pictures of honey ant at the school, these sort of vernacular images that are bound right across Papania. But this is the major work. Um, this is the wall on which the original honey ant uh, mural was created. Now there's a mural, and since that time it's been used for polemic murals. Um, this one was created by William Sandy, and it was made, importantly, before the um, Northern Territory uh, National Emergency Response of 2007, better known as the intervention. Um, as a part of the, in the federal government's intervention, uh, the autonomy of uh, Aboriginal schools was um, degraded massively and uh, the practice, at about the same time, the practice of bilingual education um, was reduced and eliminated in Northern Territory schools. So, oh, sorry, I'll just go back to that one. So here you can see uh, that these are um, images of uh, the large U's being uh, teachers, black teachers and uh, white teachers working together in a collaborative bilingual um, teaching situation at Papania. The painting has been um, uh, reserved and kept and you can see that William Sandy's put in the honey ants that give it its particular local context. So rather than um, summoning the repatriation of, Car of Carper's original mural, the, the current uh, painting represents the aspirations of the leaders now at Papania, including the children of the original muralists. Um, who support two-way education system. Since the intervention, uh, murals have been created across 
uh, many Central Australian communities um, in a way to sort of embed the intervention um, in, a, in a more sympathetic sense. Um, merchandise has also been produced and um, this is a T-shirt proudly worn by people at Papunya at the moment um, showing the Honey Ant Association at Papunya. Papunya, every day counts. The honey ants are there always. So um, such hyperreal reenactments of the mythic uh, events miss out on the subterranean su substance of Kappa's original design. Residual elements of the first murals can still be seen through the cracks of the plaster at Papania, and Panada and um, Stockman and Charlotte Philippus are old enough to have been students at the time. They were witnesses when the first murals were, were painted, and they know what lies under the accretions of paint, yet they're unwilling to uh, commercialise that opportunity until they get a more substantial recognition of uh, their, their knowledge um, and their seniority. In the broader national context, the Papunya murals are emblematic of an emergence of contemporary art as a major new force in Australian culture. Historically, the murals occupy a comparable hallowed status to the exhibition of the first major works by Papunya artists in the Sydney Biennale in 1981, an event from which there was no looking back. The presence of these oversized canvases acted, acting at an architectonic scale um, just insisted themselves on the Australian artistic consciousness. Community-based projects were a democratising feature of the 1970s and the Papunya murals are representative of their time and they sought to invert governing power relations. Yet time runs differently in the desert knowledge is revealed slowly, if at all. This is buried country whose inertia is inextricably tied to the persistence of its land-oriented culture. Despite the antiquity of Central Australian culture, what people did at Papunya was an act of remarkable contemporaneity. A radical new art form emerged there from a community of a thousand people and it's exerted a um, totally disproportionate effect on the national and global culture. Long Jack Philippus put it best when he described how it started like a bushfire, this painting business, and it went every way, north, east, south, west, Papania in the middle. The exquisitely resolved paintings that have emerged from Papania over the last 50 years continue to astound. They breathe new life into contemporary painting, an art form that the conceptualists of the 1970s had declared dead and finished. So it's fitting that the recognition is given to the Honey Ant mural in the Defining Moments lecture series, sandwiched somewhere between Christo's Rap Coast and the Mildura Sculpture Triennial, for it shares with those projects an expansive vision and earthy means. Like those projects, the Honey Ant mural was ephemeral, its direct influence is therefore somewhat intangible. For only, for after all, only primary school children, their parents, and a handful of blow-in, blow-out teachers ever saw the Honey Ant Mural in situ. Rather, the, the meaning of the Honey Ant Mural is symbolic. 
It stands for Phenomena, Contemporary Aboriginal Art that commenced in 1971 and whose brilliance we as art historians are only beginning to reckon with. The Honey Ant mural was made at the beginning, but not on the first day of creation. Carpa had already uh, worked hard formulating a new way to represent his culture with salvage materials. The mural is important though, for it began to reveal the substance of Aboriginal belief at both literal and metaphoric levels. In an immediate sense, the mural demonstrated that a ground, the groundsmen who worked at the school were also custodians of formidable sacred and ceremonial knowledge. It is unsurprising, therefore, given their prescience, that each of the muralists went on to achieve national recognition as artists and activists. A handful of archival images of the Honey Ant mural provide compelling evidence of its quality as an icon. It epitomises the symmetry, balance and dynamism of Indigenous aesthetics, qualities that have begun to pervade the national consciousness. These qualities insist that the land on which we tread is animated by living culture. Thank you. Kalabalia. <laughs> Very happy to hand over to Hannah Presley. Hello. Uh, thank you, John, for your insights and your clarity about a place in time that has come to be known as one of the most groundbreaking moments in Indigenous art and cultural expression. Uh, yes, my name's Hannah. I'm the inaugural uh, Yalingwa curator here at Aka. Um, and it's an honour to be asked to respond to um, such an important um, part of Defining Moments lectures series. Uh, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge that we are on the lands of the Boon people, and I'd like to extend my acknowledgement to the Wurundjeri and all the Kulin nations. It's a privilege to live and work on these lands. It's always so exciting to hear about this time in Papanya and to hear more that kind of brings um, those artists and that time to life, um, creating some more dimension around a story that, that most of us have some sense of. Uh, the artists that John's been speaking of tonight who were involved in the mural um, in those early days um, were artistic revolutionaries. Vivian Johnson, leading researcher and ongoing supporter of Papanya, sums up this revolution by suggesting it was the invention of a new form, uh, a new form that embraced geography or place, history or story, uh, ceremony through body designs, um, and the artist fused that together to make a new visual language. My own life and career has crossed paths with Papanya and Central Australia. I know. A bit blurry. <laughs> um, my grandfather, Albert Presley, was born around 1927 in the area now known as Pepper Minardi near the Daly River in the Northern Territory. At the age of about eight, my grandfather and his siblings were stolen from my great-grandmother and my grandfather was taken to the bungalows at the old telegraph station in Alice Springs. A few years later, uh, Albert Namajira would meet Rex Batterby at Indari and make the extraordinary move to watercolours. 
for a bit of reference, timelines. My grandfather stayed in Alice Springs. He learnt to speak Aranda and worked as a stockman, amongst other things, even laying tracks for the Gaan Railway. In 1954, my father was born. This was the same time that the water bore was struck at Papanya and the first makeshift housing for the community was built, as John was saying. A mix of language groups, including Luritja, Walpuri, Pintabi, would all be moved to Papanya over the following decades. My father told me how, as a kid, he remembers seeing my grandpa talk to Pintabi families who were emerging from the West, wandering into the outskirts of Alice, and my grandfather would tell them in, in language where to go for some food and clothes. In those days, my grandfather was still required to wear identification around his neck at all times, and segregation was still enforced in town. There were restrictions on the movement of Aboriginal people, not yet citizens. The government was still focused on assimilation, on a mission to breed out our Aboriginality. I think of all these things when I think of the revolutionary Papanya artists. They were not living in an environment that was safe or supportive of their culture. It was great hearing John talk about the, the diversity of the artists in 1970s Papanya. I think the complexities of kinship and cultural obligations are often glossed over in the retelling of this story. The original group of artists represented a variety of ages and a number of language groups that crisscrossed the Western Desert and beyond. All of these factors add to the extraordinary achievement of these artists working together. This is also why Carpa Jumpajimpa completely embodies the idea of self-determination. He took all these complicated elements of balancing the colliding two worlds and made the system work for him, using art as a way of ensuring his voice was heard. There is a myth that has pers persevered, suggesting the mural and resulting art movement sprung from barren ground, reliant on a non-Indigenous art teacher to spark artistic genius. But there were many artists who co whose contributions who made contributions at this time. I'd like to go to the next one, including Albert. I'll skip to you. I was worried that this work would be too pixelated, but I think it's okay. Um, <laughs> so this is Jim Kite. I might have to ask John about the pronunciation. Earlier Kalia? Earlier Kalika. Amazing. <laughs> Mr. Emu, he was a southern Aranda man born around 1865, and he travelled with Spencer and Gillen as an interpreter. He was a woodcarver and a carver of soft stone, a mix of artefact, landscapes and animals. He created commissions for anthropologists documenting their journeys. Here are some examples of his uh, soft, soft stone sculptures. Albert Namajira was also an early woodcarver, depicting scenes of family and culture, and Carpa too was creating work which he sold in town. Albert spent time in Papanya, the country his wife was from, and his last painting before he died was a landscape of the hills around Papanya. As we were on the country of the Kulin Nations, I think it's also important to mention Nurajida William Barak, who in the 1890s was fervently painting Wurundjeri ceremonies with a strong sense that culture needed to be documented, an urgency that his cultural knowledge and stories continue. I moved to Alice Springs in around 2000 
and my first job working in the arts was as, as gallery assistant at Warumpi Arts. This was an extremely valuable experience that continues to inform my, my curatorial practice. I stretched canvas and mixed paint and sent paintings all over the world. I spent much of this time learning about the dreaming stories the Papanya artworks represented, learning about family trees and cultural relationships. Warumpi was a gallery space set up in Alice by Papanya Community Council. We represented any community members that wanted to paint. There were hundreds of canvases in the gallery at any one time, and the palette was a rainbow. Warumpi, again meaning honey ant, was an important part of the community while it was around. It supported artists like Michael Nelson Jagamara and Long Jack Philippus Jagamara, who were still living in Papanya after Papanya Tula moved with artists back to the homelands in Kintor and Kirikara in the 1980s. Papanya's population went from 1,500 to 350 in a short period of time. I loved this time at Warumpi. Artists would drop canvases in when they were in town and they would have a chat about their work. And I remember talking with artists like Dinny Nolan about his paintings. Dinny was Carper's brother and he had survived the Coniston massacre as a child and he loved to paint. We also represented Long Jack, the last living painter from the original 1971 group of artists. He painted versions of the Kalapinpa story, a water story from north of Kinto. It was, I was very lucky to have spent some time with such important, important artists and their families, many of whom were also accomplished artists. Set up around 2006, Papanya Jupi is the art centre Warumpi always wanted to be. Set up by local women artists, including Charlotte Philippus, Papanya Jupi is based at the community providing a painting studio for the local artists. The Papanya mob is still painting. The sons and daughters and grannies that grew up during that creative explosion have run with it, developing their own unique styles from the solid foundation that was their inheritance. After Warumpi, I had the opportunity to work at Araluan Galleries. I'll just go back to this guy. A highlight of this time was working with the Albert Namajira collection and an extensive range of early Papanya boards that included uh, part of the MAGNT collection. I was in awe of these works, so bold and confident. My favourite work in the collection was the Alice Springs Caltex Art Award winning work, uh, Golgadi, which John showed earlier, that amazing work by Karpa Jumpajimpa with the blue background. Works by Johnny Warangula were also impressive. Seeing the development of the dot design was the perfect contrast to the vibrant painting styles that had taken off across Central Australia. It was the perfect foundation for understanding the legacy of those early Papanya painters. Artists like Clifford Possum and Tim Lura continued to gain momentum through the 1980s and a market was established that formed a solid base of appreciation that continues to grow. The legacy of the mural and the original group of painters is acknowledged by the immense creative output of Aboriginal artists and creative professionals. I'd just like to show you this work by Tilau. This is some recent Papanya Jupi work, but Tilau is a senior lady that's been painting for a long time and was one of the artists that I got to work with at Warumpi. And this is by Charlotte Philippus. Again, we heard a lot about Charlotte from John. 
So we have more Indigenous curators in major arts in institutions than ever before, and artists have carved out space on the international stage. Indigenous art is more relevant to telling our country's shared history than it has ever been, and art centres have become the heart of all remote community communities, leading to more innovation and development of the contemporary Indigenous art landscape. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> John, if you want to come up, we're just going to have a bit of a chat. How's that? Yep. Hello. Yeah. Both on. Fantastic. Thanks, John. <laughs> so I've just got a couple of questions. I thought we could have a chat and then we'll throw it out to the audience, see what else comes from that. So you mentioned you were part of a cohort that headed north and that you were not alone in your interest in Aboriginal art and culture. How did you find out about Papunya? Um, I was very fortunate um, and my friend who was a teacher at that institution uh, is actually here, John Wolseley. In 1976, um, the Peter Stuyvesant travelling art exhibition of Papunya Chula Art uh, was doing the rounds of tertiary institutions and it came to Gippsland and um, it was astounding and confounding um, this work I'd never, never sort of seen. I, there were, it wasn't reproduced. At that stage, there were no magazines with any of this work in. So it totally came out of the blue, you know, out of crates, onto the wall. Um, and I struggled to understand what was going on. Um, but I was absolutely intrigued, particularly by a painting, Windbarkle Serpents, by Kaba Jambi Jimba, which I put up there. Uh, and it's a painting that... Um, um, stays with me. I visit the tapestry very often in the art centre uh, as a way of saying good day to Carpa. Um, so the, I went, I was going to travel overseas, you know, do the whole hippie thing. Um, but in, instead, I got to Alice Springs and um, uh, made a connection with a YMCA officer at Papanya who said, Why don't you come out? And we drove out there with Billy Stockman, Turkey Tolson, some of the artists from, from the place, um, and arrived at Papanya, and within 15 minutes, uh, Carpa knocked on the door. Um, someone new was in town, someone maybe to do some business with. Um, so, yeah, he insisted himself on me right from, from the start. I would love to hear <laughs> if you've got any, short, any stories you'd like to share about Carpa. I think we'd all love to hear a bit more. Um, well, Carpa is, is a totally intriguing character. Uh, I think he's, you know, quite like um, people like Ben Along or Charlie Perkins, um, you know, very confident people who are incredibly brave um, to cross borders um, and to uh, understand the world that that came in on them um, from you know within another culture. So one one thing that really struck me, I was in Alice Springs um, for a weekend, and 
there was a, one of the, the big festivals of Alice Springs when uh, it was a parade of some kind, a whitefellow event, you know, like the Henley on Todd or the Camel Race or these sorts of things, regular events. So all um, these trailers going down uh, Todd Street and all the whitefellas from Alice Springs were there. There was one black face working it out and that was Carpa right there in, you know... <laughs> You know, cheek by jowl with everybody, um, curious, confident, um, very funny. Um, Kappa was uh, a brilliant mimic, you know, a gifted mimic. Like um, mimicry is not uh, not rare out out west of Alice Springs, but uh, Kappa was really wonderful at it. So um, you know, like those mimes in. Um, uh, European cities that get up behind people. He'd just sort of do that kind of business. And um, the w one memorable time was there was an art advisor um, who came a bit after me, Daphne Williams, a, 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 an old lady. Um, now she's at in Dimbula. Um, respect to Daphne. But she was also a very funny character. And Carper and her had this sort of... Um, funny communication. So when Daphne would walk across the room, Carpa would just take her on and walk behind her, one step behind with her gait. Um, yeah, he, he was just a you know, really fun, fun bloke to be with um, and you know, an amazing pioneer, really. Really brave man. You do get the impression that he was quite cheeky, so that doesn't surprise me. That's great. <laughs> For sure, the um, he I did his biography one time. Uh, I pity it's a shame I didn't do a much longer interview with him, uh, but he he described um, how when he was working on uh, Napperby Station, how they you know killed a bullock and um, you know ate the bullock, buried the bones, you know. Um, so he was he, he was into all sorts of stuff and. You know, like stealing paintbrushes from the um, from the school is, is is typical of how he'd do business. Oh, one other thing, one other little story about. Sometimes you get driven a little bit out of your mind working as an arts officer on an Aboriginal community with a checkbook. Um, and I went for refuge to um, this whitefellow teacher's house on a really hot hot day. And so, um, you know, everybody knows footprints. Everybody knows who, who, who's where, what's happening. So, uh, yeah, Carver tracked me there, <laughs> right, right across town, right across there. <laughs> tracked me down, knocked on the door and That's fantastic. had business to do. Too good. Um, I'd love to ask a bit more. I mean, it's, it's rare that we get to have these chats with people that were actually there at the time when works that we've seen in books and, and for me, grown up with, um, you were actually on the ground. Um, and I, I'd like to go back to Barack again and this idea that uh, those ceremonies that he was painting in the eight, you know, 1890, around that time, um, there was an urgency to get those designs down, to share those stories for future ge like generations. Did you have a sense of that happening with the artists, at the Papunyatula artists? Uh, for sure, yeah. There, there was, um, it, it was an opportunity to, to do something. Painting offered uh, an opportunity to record um, cultural experiences, places, um, in a very immediate way. 
I, th I think it was, it's different in that um, Papania, there were, it was a community of people doing things. So many of the uh, senior men, men mostly younger than me now, um, but still senior in a ceremonial sense, um, they were all painting. So there was a, a sense of not only recording um, for posterity, uh, and that was certainly discussed and, uh, quite a lot, it was also teaching whitefellas um, and also a sense of showing. You know, I, I was with um, Bobby West up at the launch, uh, he's a Pinterby artist, um, at the launch of Jukujano at Araluan a couple of weeks ago, and uh, Bobby described how the, um, when the Pindaby came into Papania, they had a big ceremonial thing with Amadjura, Walbury, um, and Luritja people that was very novel and uh, not, not sort of part of customary culture, I suppose, where they all got together for a really extended period and did each other's, showed each other their ceremonies. And Bobby's, there are multiple um, stories of the genesis of Papania art. Bobby's story is that the painting came out of a ceremonial exchange um, at a Corbury camp outside. So this kind of sharing thing um, was as important as preserving. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I think intergenerational learning, I mean, that's why a lot of Indigenous artists are still practising today. Mm. Um, I'd love to open it up to you guys. Uh, we've got Adrienne here with a microphone. If you guys have got anything you'd like to ask, now is the time. Does anybody have any questions? One here? I'll come back to you. Oh, hi. Um, I'm just interested in um, the photograph up here. I wasn't sure if you mentioned that in the middle of your lecture. I was wanting to know more about it. Yeah. Uh, thanks for that question. I hope someone would ask. <laughs> because it's, um, I think Max and Hannah have recognised that it's a pretty intriguing photo. Um, and it's sort of got a life of its own in relationship to defining mo moments. Um, that, the photo was taken in, was it 74? Um, and that's the, another honey ant motif. So whereas the honey ant mural was about travelling through to Papania, doing the ceremonies, travel, 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 another place, another place, this is Papania itself. So that's an image of the um, concentric circle, the, the circle being the place Papania, which is near the footy oval there, uh, the actual place. And then the um, honey ant ancestors being the U-shapes at that camp. So that's the same motif as um, Papania Chula Artists has adopted as, as their logo. Um, and it came out of an initiative that uh, Reverend Jim Dowling, um, he, he was, uh, uh, I forget what denomination, he was a minister working at the Institute for Aboriginal Development in Central Australia, and he's working on the notion that um, 
rather than grids like was originally there, it would be, it, it, um, yeah, better to have a motif from the place. So um, he convinced the powers that be to grade this one. Um, and it was graded uh, by Philip, what was the name of that guy? Panzi Ngabangadi's, the grader driver, Panzi Ngabangadi's husband. Um, Just trying to think of his name. Yeah, yeah. The white fella did the grading. Anyway, so that's, that's how it came about. So it's a, another reflection. You know, the honey ant um, is the place, Papunya's honey ant country, and it has all of these different reflections over time, the mural being just one of them. Um, John, could you say something about the um, exposure of... Uh, images that were once secret or artefacts that were once secret and also you were saying that um, when the different people came into Papunya they shared their their customary actions or dances or cultural practices is this a loss or is this a development or could you talk to that um, well, I'll, I'll talk initially about the um, what people did there, and the, you're referring to the sort of sacred um, restricted practice. Yeah. Well, the what I what I tried to do is thinking about these artists is to go back in time um, before I was there, uh, and to think of what what those men were thinking, the world that they saw around them and the world that they anticipated for their children. And, of course, they anticipated a different world that one has, that one has, that has eventuated. I suspect they anticipated a world where their children would be much better educated than they have been and where, um, you know, there'd be much better employment than there is. Um, Kappa was, um, part of his personality was pushing the boundaries of um, whitefellas, pushing whitefella boundaries all the time, but he was also pushing Aboriginal boundaries and he um, has been accused of um, uh, doing too, a lot of restricted things that should never have gone in public. Now... Um, it may or may not be the case. Um, but he, yeah, it was came out of him seeing a different world, I think, and a, a world that was opening up and, and changing. And I think that could also be... John, sorry if you don't mind. I, I feel like that could also be why Carpa maybe isn't as well-known in, in some ways in this story, um, because so much of his work has been collected and, and is hidden from us. We're, we're not seeing it mm. as frequently as someone like Clifford or, mm. or Tim Lura or Johnny Warangula yeah. um, because of that content. Yeah, for instance, um, the Northern Territory Art Gallery and Museum have, from 1971, uh, huge paintings as big as that, um, about seven of them by Carpa, um, that are just extraordinary. They're, they are so exquisitely conceived and executed, but they've been judged um, restricted. 
I think another, so yeah, they're, they're um, in the dark for uh, the next foreseeable future. Um, the other thing that happened with it was how these pictures were painted and they were created in the old town hall. A lot of the paintings were created in the um, old town hall at Papunya, an old Nissan hut. And they were created in this heightened atmosphere where there are a whole lot of men around with no women, no kids getting inside. So, uh, and a lot of people didn't understand that once those things went back, they were living on the, the cusp of the age of mechanical reproduction, um, that, you know, before images uh, came back. So they produced things that they imagined, um, and Longjack has said this, that he doesn't mind those restricted works going, but they have to go and being seen, but they have to be seen a long way away. Overseas is fine. Not in Australia, <laughs> where um, his family or related families might see them. That was part of your question? Thanks, Nan. Do we have some more? Yeah. Thank you, John and Hannah, for two really wonderful and illuminating papers. Um, my question's for John. I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about the fallout of the whitewashing of the original mural um, by the Northern Territory bureaucracy and whether there was any discussion around um, unearthing that, removing the whitewash, or whether it was seen as a highly um, controversial act, a sort of violation, how the community responded, how CARPA responded, and why there wasn't a decision to repaint it. Uh, I wasn't there at the time, so I can only speculate. Um, but what I'd offer uh, is that people thought got painted over. That's it. You know, we've still got the story, still got the design, still got the capacity to paint it. So, in a sense, the, the, the object um, was not the thing. It's the capacity to make the object, the authority to make the object that is the key thing. Uh, so, it, it does relate to uh, ceremonial design um, on, on, you know, on the ground and on... Uh, that not that design on the body, but and also on sacred objects. So it can be reproduced from from those things. And in a ceremonial context, ground designs are done, and you know once the ceremony's finished, the um, bits of fluff are collected and put put in a bag for next time. Um, so, but um, you know, more recent years, there more people have become aware that there's underpainting and that there, you can look through cracks in the school and see where there's old paintings and things like that. So there, there's quite a lot of pressure on um, senior people like Panada Stockman and Charlotte Philippus um, to be part of commercialising that, um, but they, they're not willing to do that. Uh, I think because they haven't been shown the, the kind of uh, proper respect so far. That's the sense. I discussed it with Panada and Charlotte four weeks ago. Um, so there's, a, there's an understanding what's underneath uh, and that wall 
you know, there's a, a more important painting on top of it now about bilingual education that's more, more relevant to contemporary concerns. I think we've got time for one more quick question. Does anybody have a question? No? One more? I'll just spot you that, sorry. Thank you very much indeed for this evening. Um, I noticed the dates in which Geoffrey Barden was there, and I noticed the dates when you were there. I'm wondering whether you met him and knew him at any other later date. Uh, yeah, I didn't know Jeff very well, um, but I, I did meet him and while I was at Papania, I was communicating with him and he came out to Papania, I think twice, but we didn't, we didn't meet out there, so I've met him in other locations. Um, I can't say I, I know him. Um, there's may, maybe some other people in the room who, who knew him more than me. Have we got time for a quick one or so we're not... Yeah. Anyone else? No, okay. <laughs> oh, one one. oh, yeah, great. great. I'm interested about the, the gender divide, and both of you kind of talked about that, and whether or not... I mean, I'm only familiar with what I've seen in galleries, and it seems to be more predominantly female Aboriginal artists that are at the NGV and around places that we can all see it. Is there still an issue with male Indigenous artists showing us content that, you know, obviously they're more mindful of that. What's the concern there? Um, I think for me, um, that's not really a concern anymore. I think there's a really good understanding um, in communities and with, you know, the diverse Indigenous artists, male and female, that we've got now, that they're, um, they're really aware of who the audience is now. I think it's very different to those earlier times when, like John was saying, there wasn't really that understanding of where they were going and who, who was really going to see them. Um, so I don't, I don't think that that's a concern now. And it is interesting because with my show, A Lightness of Spirit, when that was up, that was something that uh, the teachers that came in to do professional development talked about, that there is still this idea that, um, you know, in, engaging with Indigenous art means still maybe worrying about what's secret and sacred, what I'm allowed to look at. And it was really lovely to say to them, you know, that's, that's not a concern. Um, that's not something that should stop you from engaging. And, um, you know, the, the artists that are working today are very well aware. They're, they're practising artists. They're very um, conscious of, of what content they're giving out, yeah. Thanks, John. <laughs> Thanks so much, everyone, for coming tonight. Um, on behalf of ACCA, thank you, John and Hannah, for your time. It's been amazing. Um, our next lecture is on the Monday, the 3rd of June. That's Ian Melissa will be talking, and it's called Object and Idea. So we really hope you can all join us then. Um, for now, please join me in thanking you so much, Hannah Grizzly and John King. You have been listening to an ACCA podcast recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit acca.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.